Welcome to Theology.fm, your source for good Bible and theological teaching from a wide variety of podcasters, pastors, professors, bloggers, authors, teachers today. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. What do you think is the basic guiding principle of the universe? Have you ever thought about it? It's important to know because if we are unaware of how God created the universe to function and we try to go against the guiding principle, the grain of the universe that God built into the universe, life is going to be more difficult for us. I mean, if we're trying to live life with God, then life with God is so much easier and more enjoyable if we go along with the flow with what God is trying to do, with what God has built into life. So are you curious to know what God's guiding principle is? Do you want to know how you can go with the flow in God's kingdom? Well, that's what we're going to learn today on Theology.fm, as Brian Zond tells us more. Now, before we get to that, this episode of the Theology.fm podcast is brought to you by BibleWorks Software. I know in the past I've mentioned and I've recommended Logos Bible Software, and it is a great software package. It's great for commentaries, books, and things like that. But when I am doing study in Greek and Hebrew, there is no better software than BibleWorks. I use it literally every single day in my study, in my writing, in my sermon preparation, in my Bible study, for my podcast, my OneVerse podcast. Uh, it's almost open all the time as I do a lot of research and investigation into Greek and Hebrew uh, languages, depending on which book of the Bible I'm studying. So if you want to do research in Greek and Hebrew, uh, get BibleWorks. You'll never look back, I promise. It is such a powerful tool and a, a really critical part of my own study. So today, with Brian Zond, we're going to listen to a sermon of his called Going with the Grain of Love. Brian is the founder and pastor of Word of Life Church. It's a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife founded the church in 1981, and Brian's the author of several books, including A Farewell to Mars, a fantastic book, Radical Forgiveness, and several others. In this sermon, Brian presents the idea that love is sort of the guiding principle, the foundational theme of the universe. You've probably heard it said, love makes the world go round. This is, it's more than just sentimental statement about love. It is a biblical and theological fact. Brian says that love is the grain of the universe, that love is built into the universe. And what this means is that if we want to cooperate with God in this world, then we too must begin and end with love. If we don't love, then we're going against the grain of the universe. We're going against God. Uh, one interesting point in this sermon, really the ultimate reason why I've included it in Theology.fm lineup, is uh, Brian Zahn's point about the wrath of God. We often think about the wrath of God as God's active punishment or judgment upon sinners, and that is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God, according to Brian, is the natural consequence of trying to live in a way that is opposed to God. When you think about it, if love is the law of the universe, the basic law of the universe, then we shouldn't be surprised when the universe tears us to shreds when we live in hate, right? It's sort of like gravity. Gravity also is a law of the universe. You jump off a cliff, you're going to fall. 
Well, love is sort of a law of the universe. And if I try to act in a way that is contrary to love, then the universe is going to respond in a negative way. It's not God responding. It's because I'm trying to go against the law of the universe, the law of love. So the wrath of God, we call it the wrath of God, and it sort of gives us the idea it's from God. And I suppose only in the sense that God created the universe to, to, be, to, to, to circle around love, we could say it's from, love, from God that way. But uh, the pain itself that comes by, through living in hate is not from God. It's from the own lack of love. Uh, and there's so much in this sermon about love and the wrath of God. I just invite you to listen to it. Listen, the story at the end about the killings of communists in Indonesia is especially insightful. And it helps us understand how we can learn to love those we would normally hate. Anyway, I'll stop talking, and I'm going to turn the mic over to Brian Zahn, so let's tune in to see what it is he has to say about the law of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Where does the universe come from? The universe spills forth from the overflow of God's love. God's love overflows and creation is the result. God did not create from need, necessity, some kind of lack or obligation, but God creates from love. God said, because God is love. Why did God say, let there be? Because God is love seeking self-expression. Creation is the love of God expressed as energy and matter. God is love. God is light. Love said, let there be light. And there was light. Because love said it. The universe also has a flow. And a a telos. It's flowing in a direction. It's going somewhere. The universe has a flow. And a telos, a purpose, and an aim, a goal, and a grain. And the grain of the universe is love. From the heart of God, there actively flows. See, God is not inert. God is active. God is always active. God is pure being, and God is always being God. And that's not inert. God is, God is action. God is beingness. He is being God. And from the heart of God, there flows forever and continually a ceaseless flow of love. What wisdom knows, and I almost want to say that's wisdom, you know, capitalized. What wisdom knows is that to flow through life. How many of you want to flow through life? 
You want to flow through life or fight through life? You want to flow through life or fight your way? Wisdom knows that in order to flow through life instead of fight through life, you need to go with the grain. Not against the grain. You need to go with the grain. And so I want to preach tonight on going with the grain of love. That's the grain of the universe. It flows in this direction because it flows from the heart of God. Now this wisdom, the wisdom of going with the grain of love, is found in Scripture. I mean, obviously I'm I'm preaching from the Bible. And I could find so many, so many passages that will show you the wisdom of going with the grain of love. But I didn't find this wisdom, and I wouldn't have found it, by just reading the Bible alone. Reading the Bible alone, I would never have found that wisdom. Perhaps you would have, I would not have. And why is that? Because it's all too easy to just read the Bible in order to reinforce what you already think. We come upon our opinions that we often mistake for ultimate truth. We come upon them however we come upon them. I mean, I just I grew up knowing. I mean, knowing that Fords were the best cars. I just knew that. I didn't, I didn't study it. I, didn't, I just knew it. Why? Because my dad bought Fords. Whatever, what other evidence did I need? So I, that, was, that was one of a whole wild host of opinions that I had, that I came upon by hook or crook. I mean, and we all do that. I mean, some of them are as, you know, meaningless as who makes the best car. Actually, when I got around to it, and this has got to remember, this was in the 70s of actually owning and paying for a car, I ended up with a Toyota, because anyway, that's another story. (laughs) But by hook or crook, we come up with a whole combination of opinions, politically, theologically, ethically, economically, socially, etc., etc. And it's all too easy to not even realize how these ideas about life came into us. And then we, we, we have that, we're, we're, all, we're possessed by them because they form us into who we are largely. And then we, we just take that to the Bible and find Comfort and confirmation that we were right all along. Hallelujah. See, this is when the Bible becomes not a source of wisdom, but an endorsement of our own opinion. And we do it almost entirely unconsciously. Truth is, it takes very little skill to plunder the Bible in order to gain ammunition for our own argument. If you, if you have a particular opinion about something or the other, it really doesn't take that much skill to make the Bible back you up. And then, you, then, then all of a sudden, you know, well, the Bible says, and, and you're doubly convinced. 
the Bible can be made to endorse pretty much what anybody, even unscrupulous people, want to endorse. You can make the Bible endorse war and violence and racism and slavery and hatred and bigotry and almost any ism. You can make the Bible do that. By itself, the Bible won't teach you the wisdom that the grain of the universe flows according to love. No, it's there. It's actually, that is actually there. But most likely by yourself, you're not going to learn that. I began to learn the wisdom of going with the grain of the universe as the grain of love, the, the course of love, the direction is love, by sitting with Jesus with the Bible. And my first forays into the art of contemplation, I really did with the Bible. I, I, had, I had a period of time, from Advent to Easter, however long that is, it was like seven months, where every day, every day, I would get on my knees, open my Bible to John 8, and read it aloud. In the, in the, I was on my knees because, okay, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is, of course, active and speaking in John 8, and I would just place myself there. That's the chapter that begins with the attempted stoning of the woman caught in adultery and then ends with an attempted stoning of Jesus. It took me a while to notice that. That that chapter opens and closes with attempting, attempted stonings and I began to think, hmm, maybe that means something. And I just learned to, not, and I was reading it not to figure it out, not to study it, and I was deliberately trying not to reinforce my own ideas. But I was just sitting with Jesus and over the, over a period of months, that began to really open up to me. That's how I initially learned to read the Bible contemplatively, or as I say, sitting with Jesus. I began to see, as I began to do this with other passages of Scripture, especially maybe uh, parts of the Sermon on the Mount, I began to see that Jesus calls us to love our enemies because God loves our enemies. See, see the, the reason God calls you to love your enemies is because the disposition that God has toward your enemies is that he loves them. But that takes contemplation. That's hard, that's hard to get our mind around. Jesus calls for us to love our enemies not because he calls us to an abstract ethic of love. That isn't what Jesus doesn't do anything from abstract ethics. Jesus calls us to love our enemies for one reason. Not because the world will be a better place if we do, although that's true. Not because of an abstract ethic of love, as noble as that may be. Jesus calls us to love our enemies because our Father in heaven loves the good and the bad, the just and the evil. The righteous and the unrighteous. He calls us not so much to love, but to be like our Father. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Love flows with the grain of the universe. The grain of being flows in the direction of love because God is love. If we move through life against the grain of love, 
we will be torn by the shards of ill consequence. Call this the wrath of God if you like. Because in fact the Bible does. If you see, creation itself flows from the love of God. And that gives us the grain, as I'm using that term. The grain of the universe is to flow according to love. Now, as a creature that has the capacity of altruistic love, that is part of what it means to be created in the image of God, that you can love people in a self-sacrificing way, in a co-suffering way. Once you are given that capacity, you need to flow with that potential. Because if you don't, if you choose to move through life against the grain of love, and that that usually the motivation becomes from self-interest or fear, If you move through life against the grain of love, you will be torn by shards of ill consequence. And you can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. But but the wrath of God is not to be understood here as divine vindictiveness. As if God is personally insulted. Here, I'm going to give you an insult. You're not big enough to personally insult God. I mean, you're just not. I mean, you're just, that's just... You do not have the capacity to grow that large that you could insult God. The wrath of God is not divine vindictiveness. It's simply the result of trying to go against the grain of the universe as God has ordained it. And it will tear you up. The wrath of God is the consequences of pretending the universe is other than it is. See, a little, a little human being gets, gets the idea that it's all about me. And that the universe should be ordered, ordered according to my self-interest. And starts trying to walk through the world like that. And eventually it just beats the daylights out of him. You can call that the wrath of God if you like. The wrath of God is the consequences of pretending the universe is other than it is. The wrath of God is the pain of acting like power is the ultimate truth instead of love. That's one of the primary deceptions that we uh, are deluded by. We think that what the universe is about is about power. And we see what we call evidence for that. And we bolster our opinion that what is most important is to have power. Which is why I say that in the end, it comes down to who you're going to believe, and there's only two. There's Jesus, and there's Nietzsche. I think those, it's, it's one or the other. You, I think if you think there's an, a third option, I have, I'm not going to bring it up, but I think there is maybe a third option, but still, I'm going with Jesus. I think primarily in Western society, you have two options. Jesus. Or Nietzsche. And, and, well, here, and Nietzsche was brilliant. Don't think he was an idiot. He wasn't an idiot. He was, he was kind of a mad prophet. He saw things very clearly except where he was absolutely wrong. And what he was wrong about was this. Nietzsche did not believe in the reality of love. For Nietzsche, love was nothing more than a means by which the weak manipulate the strong. 
Nietzsche really believed that what it's all about is the will to power. And he did not believe that love was a real thing, that it was a delusion. It was a, it was a crafty way that the weak who didn't have sufficient power could come up with their own power, which he called slave morality, to manipulate the strong. I'm with Jesus. I believe that love is real. I believe that love comes from God. I believe that God is love. I believe that ultimately the universe is organized not around power enforced by violence, but love expressed in forgiveness. But the wrath of God is what happens when we are governed by the will to power instead of governed by the grace of love. God is omnipotent. Asterisk. Omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful with a little asterisk right there to remind us that God subordinates his power to his love. The Bible doesn't ever dare to say and would not say for it is not true. The Bible would not say God is power. God is all-powerful, but God is not power. But the Bible does dare to say God is love and it dares to say it twice. God does not act for the sake of power. God acts for the sake of love. So, divine judgment, divine wrath. If you use people, you will be used by people. Why? It's just the way the universe is set up. It's just the way it is as God creates and either you acknowledge that or you pretend the universe is other than it is and you end up being hurt by it. If you force people, people will force you. If you retaliate, you will be retaliated against. If you hate, you will be hated. It's the way the universe is. This is true of individuals. It's true of empires. It is true. So that if you use people, people use you. You force people, they force you. You retaliate, you're retaliated against. You hate, you're hated. It's true of individuals and empires. And both end up in hell if they pretend God has constructed the universe other than it is. Now I'm going to say something outlandish. If you love, you will suffer, but in the end, you will not be harmed. That's my outlandish statement. If you love, you will suffer, but in the end, you will not be harmed. Is this, is this claim absurd? My claim is that if you love, you will suffer, but in the end, you will not be harmed. Is that claim absurd? It's only as absurd as Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because that's part of what Good Friday and Easter Sunday are saying to us. Good Friday says, if you love, you will suffer. And, and you can't shrink back from it. You can't avoid it. You can't say, I want to love, but I don't want to suffer. Sorry. Good Friday says it can't be done. Good Friday says, if you love, you will suffer. Easter Sunday says, but you won't be harmed. In the end, you'll be all right. You will suffer on Good Friday. But Easter, 
will make everything all right. And what will flow out of you is the word of peace. If you don't love, you are going against the grain of the universe. And not only will you suffer, you're going to suffer one way or the other. There's no getting around suffering. If you don't love, you're going against the grain, contrary to the grain of the universe, and you will suffer and you will also be harmed. The truth is no ultimate harm can befall those who love. Conversely, no ultimate good can be enjoyed by those who refuse to love. And this is, this is, this is one of the great teachings of the Psalms. You can find it in other places, but it's predominant in the Psalms that the wicked in the end do not prosper. The psalmists wrestle with this. They're looking at the wicked and they're going, dang, it looks like, you know, everything works out for them. That is, they're forceful. They, they, they achieve the will to power and they, and they smash the little ones and they grab and they cheat and, and they live in their big mansions and it looks like everything's working out for them. But the psalms always make clear that there is a day of judgment. And that that does not stand. And that either in life or in death, there will be judgment. The wicked, by the way, are understood as those who refuse to act according to love. They act according to power and self-interest and their own will. And they act forcefully according to their own interest rather than according to love. It appears that they are prospering, but it does not stand. So I like what Elder Zosima says in the Brothers Karamazov. What is hell? I maintain it is the suffering of no longer being able to love. If you absolutely arrive at the place where you cannot love, you are going to go eternally contrary to the grain of the universe and you will be torn by its shards. 1 John chapter 3. Back up a chapter. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. That the world hates you, that is the world system, that is, that is the world of systemic evil built around violent power and blame-based religion. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But I would add this commentary. If you say any of that too clearly, the world of systemic sin will hate you. I watched a movie this week, a documentary on Netflix. I like to watch documentaries. Nobody recommended it. I was just browsing and thought, hmm. I read the little synopsis and thought, well, this might be interesting. And the documentary was entitled The Act of Killing. It was made in 
2012 came out last year and then was highly awarded, uh, winning many major awards in Europe especially, was Oscar nominated here in the United States, directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. And it's dealing with the Indonesian killings of 1965 and 66. In 1965 in Indonesia, there was an attempted coup against the military regime that governed and to this day governs Indonesia. There was an attempted coup that failed. In retaliation and as a form of purge uh, over the next year throughout 65 and 66, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 people were put to death. These were communists, but I say communists, I mean, there were no doubt some communists among them, but then what happened was anybody who was less than enthusiastic about the military dictatorship of Indonesia was called a communist and was subsequently killed. But the military regime did not want to have to dirty their hands in the ugly business of doing the actual killing, so what they did was they hired some of the local petty criminal gangs to be death squads. And they would give them a name, say, here's your name. And you're to bring this person in, interrogate them, and get them to confess that they are a communist. And when they confess that they're a communist, you kill them. Now, of course, you know, once, once that name was given to these death squads, these gangs, I mean, the, you know, their fate was sealed. They were going to be tortured, and one way or another, they were going to confess that they were a communist, and then they were going to be killed. The only way they could get out of it is if they had enough money to bribe the leaders of these gangs. And so they did this until half a million people had been killed, and in the process, a lot of these gang leaders got rich. The film centers on a man named Anwar Congo. Now, he'd be in his 70s now. He was in his 20s when he was involved in these killings. And now he's in his 70s. And so it was a documentary kind of on his life. And I have to tell you, he, he, he strikes you at one level as a very amiable, kind of a charismatic figure, interesting. Shows him with his grandchildren, hugging them and kissing them and no doubt loving them. But he has this history. And uh, so they, and he's quite proud of what he's done. You know, after all, we, we, had, we had to stop the communists. Of course, you know, I don't want to take time teaching on scapegoating again, but you understand how that worked for Indonesia in 65 and 66, that, that the whole nation was able to project all of their sin and evil on anybody they wanted to and just call them a communist, and that way you could kill them without consequence. And so they're making this film of him. Or he's prominent in the film, we'll put it that way. And he quite happily shows how he killed. And he says, says, uh, by his own estimation, he said, I think I killed somewhere around a thousand people myself. And I think I have a picture of him demonstrating. There he is, he's in the green shirt. And, you know, he's he's smiling, he's happy, and he's got a guy that's going to, you know, 
sit in there and demonstrate. And he came up, he talked about how he, he first beat people to death or he would do this. It was too bloody and too messy. And he came up with this little simple system where he wrapped this wire around their neck and then he would have it attached to something he could hold on to and he would just kill them. And he did that somewhere around a thousand times. And he doesn't appear to be very troubled by it. Um, he sees himself as a national hero. And then the director of the film did something that was brilliant. I don't know to what extent he did it on purpose. I, I suspect he knew what he was doing. But uh, he tells Anwar, he says, look, we're going to recreate some of these interrogations and tortures and killings. And we're going to film it. We're going to do it well. And we're, we're going to show what it's, what it's like. And just for the fun of it, why don't you play... Because you're in your 70s now. Why don't you play one of your victims? And all he was like, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be great because, you know, he, he, he's kind of a character. And he's, oh, now, now I get to be a, like a movie star. He, he joyfully think, talks of himself as a gang. I'm a gangster. And he talked about how he liked watching American movies. His favorite movies with... Uh, yeah, he mentions John Wayne. And... Uh, uh, Al Pacino and those, those sorts of things. And he calls, he, you know, he, he calls himself a gang. He says, oh, now I get to be a movie star. You know, he's, he's digging this. Going to be a movie star. And so, they, so, they, so they, they put him in makeup, you know, and, they, and I think we've got another picture here. And here he is acting. He's acting. And, you know, and the blood on him, that's all just makeup. You know, they've, they've put the, and he, you see him, they're putting the makeup on him. He's joking and laughing and this is going to be fun. I get to act. I get to be a movie star. I'm going to be in the movies. And they, they, they get him to act and they have him being interrogated. You know, confess you're a communist, you're a communist. And he's, he's, now watch what happens. What the director has done, you call him a movie director, I call him a spiritual director. He has taken Anwar and has, in a very clever way, got him to practice contemplation. He is now having to consider really what it's like to be the other. Something he's, ne- he's doing in the name of acting, but what he has to do is he has to consider what it's like to be not the one in power, not the one interrogating, not the one that has the might of the military behind him, but to be the other, the accused, the victim. He starts acting. And you know, interesting. I think he's a pretty good actor. He starts acting. And then they come to the scene where he's going to be executed and they put that wire around his neck. Of course, he understands this is all just acting. They put the wire around their neck and they're about to move into the scene where he's going to act like he's being killed and he can't do it. He freaks out. He says, no, stop, 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 stop. He says, I can't do it. Stop. He's very upset now. He says, stop. And he's kind of, he's kind of lost it. You know, he's just, they're, they're bringing water, bringing water, and he's just sitting there. And they just keep the cameras rolling. And some time passes, and finally he says, he kind of whispers it, but you hear him speak to the director, Joshua Oppenheimer. And he says, Josh, I know what my victims felt like. 
And the spiritual director, I mean film director, said quite rightly, Anwar, you do not. You knew all along this was just acting and nobody was going to hurt you. Your victims were really being tortured and they knew they were going to be killed. What you felt was a tiny little bit of what they felt. And then the spiritual director, film director, takes Anwar back to the same place where at the beginning of the movie he is showing very cheerfully how he killed people. But now he has been placed in this position of contemplation where he has acted the role of the other and he takes him back there. Go ahead and put up that slide. And when he gets there, he vomits and then just begins to retch. And he begins to moan. And he can't, he, and that's how the movie ends. And I thought to myself, dear Lord in heaven, that man has begun a descent into hell. Hell, among other things, is having to face the monster you have made of yourself with nothing to distract you. You're just there with what you have become. And there's nothing else to distract you. This is one of the most brilliant films I've seen. I don't know if I recommend it or not. It's to, can you take it? It's, it's not particularly, it's not gory, but it's, it's still brutal. It's, dis, it's disturbing. That's the word. It's a very disturbing film to watch. Very disturbing. And uh, Anwar Congo isn't the only uh, leader of these gangs. There's a couple of others that they feature. He's maybe the most prominent. But all of them, you can tell, are... They're just not mentally stable. Um, they had so dehumanized themselves that they're, to a certain extent, they don't seem in touch with reality. Now, if we move through life against the grain of love, we will be torn by the shards. And one of the things the Bible makes clear, listen to me, is that no one gets away with anything. If you are worried about people getting away with things, first of all, I would say that's not your position. But secondly, I would say don't worry about it. No one gets away with anything. There is a judgment. And in the end, we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. I mean, what is happening with Anwar when he returns to that site after he's been skillfully made to contemplate and face himself from the position of the other, what happens is, he is he's already entering into a kind of punishment as he vomits and wretches and moans. But he's not being punished for his sins. That was, that, that's what would happen if he was taken to the international court in, in, in The Hague and tried on war crimes, which there was some discussion of that. He would be punished for his sins, but... That it wasn't happening, but he was being punished. He was being punished by his sins. So, here we are as Christians. What should we do? Well, what we should do as human beings is what Jesus always told us to do. Keep the commandments. 
And Jesus says, you know, there's really only two. You don't need your 613. You need two. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's only two commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's that second commandment that gives validity to the first. Everybody thinks that loving the first commandment, loving God, is the easy one. And it is because we're too abstract with God. But the first one only gets validity by how you do the second one. And the second one requires contemplation because if you're going to love God, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to think what it's like to be your neighbor. You're going to have to act. You need a spiritual director to say, okay, here's where they sat. Act like them. Put yourself in their seat, in their shoes, in their situation, in their circumstance until you feel it, man. And then love them. Requires contemplation. First John chapter 4, back in First John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we say, I love God, but we hate our brother, that is the other, we are lying to ourselves. That's who we're lying to. We're lying to ourselves. I love God. I love God. But John says there's a problem. You can't see God. You only see God in the Imago Dei. You only see God in the image bearer. You only see God in the other. Because God whom you cannot see then can become abstract and what you end up doing is actually loving yourself because you imagine God to be like you. But then when you find out that the other, your neighbor, whether you call them friend or enemy, bears the image of God and you can't love them, now the cat's out of the bag and the truth is on the table that you never did love God. You only loved yourself. That's what's wrong with, that's what's problematic with the saying, love the sinner and hate the sin. That becomes problematic. I say, love the sinner and hate your own sin. God did not call you to go about hating other people's sin. That's a problem. Hate your own sin. The biblical test case for love of God, in other words, is love of neighbor. And you think, okay, all right. But the biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. We love God to the extent that we love the communist. I'm thinking about Anwar. See, all he had to do was be told, and he's playing a game. He's lying to himself, too. He knows. I mean, I'm not even going to deal with whether, you know, the way you should deal with communists and you know, under a fascist regime is to kill them. I'm not even dealing with that. I'm just saying he knows good and well that the vast majority of these people are not communists. They're people that simply for whatever reason, some of the power structures have deemed an enemy. But all he had to do was call him a communist and then he would 
he felt with impunity could kill them. Well, we love God to the extent that we love... Oh, and by the way, there, there was a scene where, you know, he lives in a Muslim country. And the Muslim called to prayer and he would, he would pause. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Muslim called to prayer. I don't, I don't think there's any, idea, there's any doubt that if you ask him, do you love God? Of course I love God. But we love God to the extent that we love the communists. I'm thinking about Anwar. Now, can Anwar be saved? Can Anwar be saved? Of course he can. And I think the journey began when he began to contemplate the other. That's putting him on a good path, though it may be a hard path. So St. Augustine says, love and do what you will. Love and do what you will. Let me just, let me, so you don't miss what, St. Augustine says, love and do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can do anything. You're free in Christ. You can do anything you want as long as you love. But you cannot live by this maxim without doing it in the context of the church. Why? Because our own, on our own, as an individual, we cannot trust that our actions are indeed actions of love. I need the whole church to sit with me and from time to time say, Zond, you're saying that what you're doing is out of love, but it's basically out of self-interest. You're calling it love, it's not love. And so I can't just leave that out. Yes, it's true, love and do what you will. But you need a larger community than yourself to help you understand what real love is. It's very easy to confuse actions of love with actions of self-interest. So, for example, you have two 15-year-olds. And they say, well, we love each other. We want to do what we want to do. What does the church say when two 15-year-olds says, well, St. Augustine says love and do what you will. There's no other commandment but, you know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we, we really love each other. And so we want to do whatever we want to do. What does the church say? The church says, no, you are acting out of self-interested desire. The short term for that is lust. And the church says, no, when you pledge, you, you truly love this person when you pledge your life to them. To live with them forever in sickness and in health. For richer or for poorer, no matter what. Until, until the day that you die, you're going to live with them no matter what happens. And when you make that pledge in the presence of us all, then love and do what you will. But not until then. To flourish as a human being, you must flow with the grain of love. Our capacity to love comes from knowing that we are loved by God. We love because he first loved us. There are, now, God loves everybody. God only has one disposition towards human beings, and it is unceasing, unconditional, unvarying, unwavering love. But a whole lot of people don't know that. And you see people that are, that are raised without that knowledge... And it's very difficult for them to love. And so we have to be very patient with them. 
We have to be very kind and patient with them because for them to learn to love is going to be a kind of a long process. If you were not exposed to absolute, unconditional love early in life, primarily from parents, and some people have not been, then it's a long haul to learn to love. And what those people need is just a lot of patience. I mean, we need to be patient with them and love them and understand that they're going to lash out and misunderstand. And, but we just love Love of God demands love for the other. Be they lover, neighbor, or enemy. Love of God demands love for the other. Be they lover, neighbor, or enemy. The only way to love the other, especially an enemy, is to practice the art of contemplation. Because it's contemplation that makes the golden rule possible. You know the golden rule. Do unto others. Help me out. How's it go? As you'd have them do unto you. Well, to do that, you have to think what it's like to be the other. You have to actually say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've, just, I've, looked, at, I've looked at all of life through my own perspective, my own lens, my own view of self-interest. But Jesus says I should treat others, the other as I would want to be, so I got to put my, well, if I were them, what would I want? And to treat such people is very, to, to, to go through life like that, where you're going to do unto others as they would have them do unto you, that is a very constraining way to approach life. Jesus calls it the narrow way. The golden rule is the narrow way. We wanted to make, because we, we want to be off the hook, we've made, well, the narrow way is just believing the right things about Jesus. Although, Jesus never says anything remotely like that. In fact, here's what Jesus, Jesus tells you what the, what the narrow gate is. He says, he says, Jesus says, Matthew 7, 12 through 14, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. Enter by the narrow gate. Come on, Jesus says, do this. Enter by this narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. If you want to just go through life viewing things through the lens of vested self-interest, that's easy, that's wide, but it's going to make you run contrary to the grain of the universe. And in the end, it's going to tear you to pieces. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But I believe that you're part of the few. So in closing, let me talk to you for just a few moments. I'm closing. Eric, why don't you come on up here? Uh, let me talk to you for just a few moments about your communists. I don't mean, you know what I mean. I mean the others whom in your mind you in one form or another torture and kill. That is, you curse and dismiss. I'm talking about those others 
whom you have imprisoned in the Guantanamo Bay of your heart. What are you going to do about them? They may be real people that you actually know their name. They may just be kind of a nameless mass, a group of a certain religion, politics, ethics, or whatever that you don't like. What are you going to do with them? Let me direct you. I'll be the director. We're going to have a little movie here. I want you to be in the movie. I want you to act. I want you to act like them. I want you to play their role. I want you to be in their place. Try to be a good actor. Come out of yourself. Come out of yourself. Have an ecstasy, an ecstasis, just to stand outside yourself. And crawl in the skin of someone else. That's what an actor is. Try to be an actor. Get in their skin, in their situation, in their background, their ethnicity, their way of looking at the world. You, you, you claim you know something about how they look at the world, what their opinions are. That's what you don't like about them. Well, try to see things. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's true. But just try to see it as they see it. In their deception, if you want to call it that. Fine. Try to see it still. How do they see it? Try to be them in your imagination. And just, and just sit there with Jesus. And just talk to Jesus. Because you, you always do this with Jesus. You say, Jesus, okay, I, I'm, I'm sitting in their place. Here's how I feel about it, Jesus. Here's what I think. Here's what I feel. Here are my fears. Here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what I'm angry about. Sit with the other in the presence of Jesus. Sit as the other in the presence of Jesus. And then maybe Jesus just whispers. He just says, maybe he just says, maybe he just says... How do you want to be treated? And maybe a little idea comes to your mind about how you'd like to be treated at least, at least with some respect, with some understanding, with some sympathy, with some mercy. And if you can say that, I think Jesus, I think, I don't, I don't, I'm not too worried about saying this, I think I'm right. I think Jesus maybe just sort of Gently, slowly nods his head and says, yes. Go and try to do that. And if you will, if you go and try to do that, you'll start finding yourself flowing with the grain of love. Now, if you do that, you're going to suffer. But you're going to suffer one way or the other. There's, you're not going to get through life without suffering. That's, I'm sorry. It's better to know that up front. It'll actually make it less. You'll actually suffer less if you know it. You're, you're going to suffer. But if you will stay in the flow of the grain of love, though you suffer, you will not be harmed. 
No lasting harm. Now, the pain will be there, but the pain will also go. And when the pain goes, you won't be all messed up. You'll be okay. And the evidence will be is that you will be able to speak peace to other people. Peace. Peace be with you. Because you're not, you're, not, you're not so wounded, you're not so harmed that you're lashing out. Jesus doesn't come back from his suffering. And whose suffering is like our Lord's? He doesn't come back from his suffering messed up. He doesn't come back vindictive. He doesn't come back saying, where's, where's Caiaphas? He doesn't do that. Because though he has suffered, he has not been harmed. Because he just stayed in the grain of love. Suffering, yes. Lasting harm, no. And that's what, that's, that's what the Spirit wants to call you to. To go with the grain of the universe. Go with the grain of love. You, that's, that's, that's the language I'm using tonight. I can also call it the Jesus way. I can also call it the way of the law and the prophets. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I can call it the law and the prophets. I can call it the grain of the universe. I can call it the Jesus way. It's really all the same thing. Go with that. From time to time you'll suffer. But you will not be harmed. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Our time's just about up. I'm just not going to... Okay, so that was Going Against the Grain of Love with Pastor Brian Zond. As we close out, let me ask you, how are you learning to love others in your life? How are you learning to go with the grain of love? Most importantly, if loving our enemies is a defining characteristic of the follower of Jesus, how are you learning to show love to your enemies? This is something you'd like to weigh in on? Give your input, ideas, and suggestions in the comment section of this episode. You can find it over at theology.fm slash bryanzond slash 23. This is episode 23, Brian Zond, Going Against Grain of Love. So the show notes are at theology.fm slash bryanzond slash 23. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you online. Talk to you later. Bye.